Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Sophia Herzog. Sophia is a para swimmer and she is a two-time Paralympian and has recently got back from Tokyo after winning a medal. Congratulations, Sophia, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your impairment, for want of a better word, and how you got into swimming in the first place? Yeah, I was diagnosed with a form of dwarfism called achondroplasia. Um, so I stand fully grown at four feet tall, and my limbs are essentially disproportionate to my trunk size that's within the achondroplastic dwarfism. Um, I got into swimming when I was really young. My mom put me into swim lessons um, really young because now I can finally stand in four feet of water. She wanted me to have a good understanding of the water um, to feel confident in it. And I joined a club team at 10 years old. And I was going to the swim meets with DAAA, which is Dwarf Athletic Association of America. And there is where we met. Miranda Ewell and Aaron Popovich, who were swimming, who just finished the 2008 Beijing Games at the time. And they got me interested in trying out the Paralympics. So I went to the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center um, in about 2010 for a swim meet. And that was my first Paralympic swim meet. That's where I got classified into the S6 classification. And I wasn't really competitive just because I wasn't training at the level I needed to be. So the coach, the resident coach at the time made a deal with me. If I graduated high school year early, he would save me a bed at the training center to train for the 2016 games. And so I graduated in 2014 at age 17. And I moved two weeks after my high school graduation to the training center to train for the 2016 games um, where I won a silver medal in the SB 600 meter brushstroke. And then I stayed on until 2019. Then I just, I decided to move out and train privately um, for two years leading into the 2020, 2021 Tokyo Paralympic games where I won a bronze medal in the hundred meter brushstroke. Awesome. So pretty successful and you started very young. I believe when you started, you used to train about an hour away from home. How did you manage that? Yeah, um, I grew up in a really small mountain town. And so that was the closest team. And we would only go three, four times a week just since it was so far and I was going to school. Um, So I was not doing anywhere near the training load that I was going to need to be competitive for the Paralympic Games at that time. Uh-huh. And so how did that change once you moved to the training centre? What sort of training load were you doing there? Yep. So we trained in the water nine times a week, and then we were in the weight room three times a week. And then at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Centre, we swim long course, which is a 50-metre pool instead of a 25-yard pool. Oh, so that first, first couple of months must have been a bit of a shock to the system. Yes, I was I was sleeping a lot. <laughs> and were you eating a lot as well? Yes, I I think my my food load doubled at that time. 
So you can, can you give us an outline of how you fitted your food in around your training? Yeah, and it, it kind of stayed the same throughout my whole training, even into 2021, where I would do two small breakfasts. So one pre-training, um, then I'd go train, and then a post-training, um, and then I'd have a lunch. And then similar, I would do that with dinner, where I'd do a smaller dinner pre-training, and then I'd go train, and then a post-dinner train dinner yep uh-huh and do you think you changed the type of food that you ate or was it more just the the complete volume more the complete volume um I had a pretty good idea of what kind of food to be eating um, my mom got her degree in nutrition so growing up I ate fairly healthy um so I knew carb protein ratios um fruit vegetables all that good stuff okay great and so tell us what a typical training week would have looked like before Tokyo. Before Tokyo, um, I, my coach and I kind of mocked the same schedule of swimming nine times a week. Um, and I was in the weight room two to three times a week. Um, my times were a little different every week just due to COVID. Um, getting pool time got a lot more challenging, mm. to say the least. Mm. And so did you have to find an alternative to the pool? During during the massive shutdown in April of 2020 here in the States, um, I trained in the Arkansas River for a little bit. Oh. And then um, the resorts opened here earlier than the rec centers. So I went and trained in a, in a resort pool oh. for a couple of weeks after the Arkansas River. <laughs> Was that a tiny little pool? Um, it wasn't a tiny pool, but it was a hot springs pool, so it was like ninety degrees. <laughs> so it was it was absolutely horrible t- to train. Oh, that's called heat acclimation at its worst. <laughs> yeah, it was. I had to be losing a ton of sweat, and I'd get out, and my coach would dump like really cold water, and I'd just sit outside for a little bit, and then we'd get back in and do a set, and then I'd have to get back out. Oh, man, just the extra challenge. Can you give us a run through what a typical day's intake would look like for you at that time? Yeah. Leading into Tokyo, when I switched coaches, my training changed a little bit to being more power-based, sprint-based, not a ton of rest a lot. And I was going through some stomach aches for a while, and it was my body under so much stress there were certain foods I couldn't eat. So pre-training breakfast and dinner kind of looked like a bowl of oatmeal with a banana, peanut butter, honey, chia seeds, something super easy just to sit in my stomach well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then post swimming um, in the morning, it would be a smoothie because my stomach could still be a little bit uneasy. I usually did like a spinach smoothie with peanut butter, a protein powder, almond milk, and then I'd have a pretty big lunch sandwich. And then dinner, I would kind of do like maybe scrambled eggs pre-training, a bowl of oatmeal, something like that, just to make sure I didn't get a stomach ache. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'd have a pretty good dinner. Mm -hmm. So that stomach ache you, you were getting really was just because of the intensity do you think like you never got that when you were in Colorado Springs? Yeah, that's that's what they brought it down to was my body was under so much stress. Like I couldn't eat apples that 
that got marked out really quickly because of all the sugar in the apple. My my system just got a huge stomach ache. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite interesting to run into that problem at that stage of my career. And has that settled down since Tokyo now that you're having a break from swimming? Yeah. And it only happened when I would swim. So I could eat on Sunday morning. I, I could have a huge breakfast, you know, go for like a ski or something and be completely fine. It was just during training when we would be really pushing it. Um, mm-hmm. If I ate something wrong, yep. I'd get a huge stomach ache. Wow. It's interesting how things can change over the, your career. And I mean, you're still only 23 years old. So it's, <laughs> we're not, it's not like you're a, an old lady by any stretch of the imagination, but for a swimmer, that's yeah. you know, it's still an extensive career. Yeah, thank you. After Rio, I remember that we went through a process of trying to work out what the best body weight or body composition was for you for your swimming. Can you talk us through what that process looked like, how it started, how you approached it, and what the outcomes were? Yeah, so after Rio, we ended up getting a new strength coach who rewrote our whole system Um, our strength system. He came from a huge Olympic weightlifting background. Um, So our programs were written with really heavy squats, um, deadlifts, clean jerks, just a lot of really heavy lifting. And I had never done that before to that intensity. So I gained, I think, It's like 12 pounds of solid muscle mass we figured out at one point. And I figured it out when I was racing and my my race suits from Rio started snapping. Like I couldn't (laughs) even get them on. (laughs) Um, Extra, extra tight. (laughs) Yeah. And I I looked like kind of like a little bodybuilder walking around. Um, I was just solid muscle. And when I started racing, I started complaining about that. It was, I felt really tired just trying to keep myself above water. Mm -hmm. Like I was spending a lot of energy while racing just to try and keep myself floating, which I never complained about before. And then that's when you and I started doing the skin folds um, and figuring that out, weighing myself more. And that's where we, we figured out I, I gained like 12 pounds, <laughs> um, which is a lot for someone who's four feet tall. Yeah. Um, and, and under a hundred pounds in the first place. Yes. So I ended up kind of getting, I needed two knee surgeries. So that, that pulled me out where I started losing the muscle mass because I wasn't training. Um, we got a new strength coach And I went into it saying um, my body reacted really well to this guy's training, but it wasn't the right training for a swimmer. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we rework my training schedule? And he, I didn't do any heavy lifting. It was all kind of, um, I did a lot of balancing at first, um, a lot of body weight resistance with bands coordination stuff. Um, so I wasn't doing any squats, jerks, snatches, anything like that. And with that, the, that muscle, extra muscle mass went down, um, throughout the knee surgeries. 
and then switching out my whole weight program. And so you hadn't really changed your diet at all when you put on the muscle mass. It was really just a response to the training that you were doing. Yeah. And I think, I think what helped was um, I was pretty regimented and like at the training center, we'd swim and then we'd have like a 30 minute window and then go straight to weights. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was pretty regimented on like having a protein shake right after weights Yep. So, I mean, it was a perfect storm for gaining muscle mass. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd rip my muscles, break my muscles down and then have a protein shake and, you know, yep. build them yep. tenfold. <laughs> You're, you've got good genes for, for being a bodybuilder if you ever want to go into that. <laughs> yes. It just was not good for, for being a swimmer. No. It sort of, you know, without the extra body fat to kind of create the buoyancy it just meant that you you sank heavier in the water which meant that that resistance in terms of the water flow was too great for you to be able to overcome with your swim stroke so yeah I think you ended up back at the weight that you had competed at in Rio Um, were you at a similar weight once you can when you competed in Tokyo yep I was I was within the the pound wow yeah cool what do you think is some of the important components that contributed to your success as a swimmer? Oh, goodness. That's a really good question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. <laughs> um, I was a really focused swimmer. That was That is my job. Um, so I took it really seriously mm-hmm. into all components um, of eating right and sleeping right and giving my best effort in training every single day. Um, I think that's what it boiled down to uh, was I took this as my job and everything I did throughout the day and night was to better my performance. Mm. Yeah, that definitely is something that we saw when working with you. You you always had a good attention to the all the details and not letting anything slip uh, that you could control anyway. Thank you. Um, now that you're taking a break from swimming, has your diet changed at all? I, I know Beyonce is a very tall, skinny paracyclist and, uh, you know, it must be hard. Well, how do you manage your nutrition plan compared to his nutrition plan? Yeah, um, I've just been a little bit looser about my diet, honestly. Like we, we have a pint of ice cream in our freezer right now. But it's, it's been interesting living together for sure of just the portion sizes, you know, like if I was to cook for myself, you know, I would cook two, two eggs, three eggs, you know, and call it good. But like, when we cook for the both of us, it's like six eggs. I'm like, Oh, my goodness, this is a lot of food we're, (laughs) we're, you know, cooking. Um, So just, just more of the quantity of food um our portion sizes are different but we eat eat the same for sure yep and do you feel as though your appetite has adjusted downwards with the reduced amount of training yeah for sure there's there's days where um i definitely skip lunch just because i'm not hungry I don't need two breakfasts, two dinners, you know, it's just one meal now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely still a snacker through the day, which I think kind of ruins my appetite for lunch. Um, yep. But 
I think my quantity's gone a little bit down, but my food, my diet has kind of loosened a little bit um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And loosened is, you know, the pint of ice cream in the freezer rather than a complete shift away from what you were eating before. Yeah. Just enjoying food a little bit more, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's a good um, thing. Yeah. Not, not being completely worried of what I was going to eat and if it was going to fuel me. Yep. And do you have any recommendations for practitioners who are working with para-athletes, um, whether they're dietitians or strength and conditioning coaches or, you know, coaches or sports psychologists, any recommendations that you have for them in, based on your experience as a para-athlete? Yeah, I think especially living at the training center, having – you know, around eight teammates that ranged in different disabilities, that there was not as like one, one workout, one diet, one exercise plan that fit us all, that those practitioners really need to learn their athletes at a personal level, what their abilities are, what their strengths are, what, you know, their disability is, you know, what's not possible, or smart to do and write their own program for them. And it gets kind of tricky because, you know, we were in the strength room or the gym and there's like six different programs happening Mm -hmm. and, you know, our head coach and then the two interns were writing it and having to cycle through us to make sure, you know, we were doing it, but that in turn was the best because there's really no reason for, a double above knee amputee to be doing leg, a leg day, (laughs) you know, Um, that's just a a waste of everybody's time. Um, And I think that's what I really learned and had to advocate for myself just because I, I have dwarfism. So I have all four limbs, all four limbs work equally. I'm honestly just a lot smaller. And Mm -hmm. some of the things we do, would be a bit of waste of time in, in for my disability. And I just had to advocate for myself that I could be utilizing my time in a better way, especially in diet. You know, there's sprinters. We had sprinter swimmers. And then we had endurance, 500-meter swimmers, 400-meter swimmers. And, you know, their diets were completely different. Whereas, you know, one of my best friends is in a wheelchair, so she's burning a ton more calories just in her day-to-day activities, yep. discounting swimming yep. um, than I was. Yep. So just individualizing programs, I think yep. was my biggest. Right. And what about any recommendations for youngsters with achondroplasia who are trying to you know, maybe look at opportunities in sport? Yeah, um, I think finding your sport and what it is, if it's not swimming, there is other sports offered to um, dwarfism athletes um, and just advocating for yourself. That was, that was my biggest thing. You know, I, I found the coach and I was nowhere near Paralympic caliber when I found um, the resident coach at the time. But, you know, I said, Hey, I'm in a really bad situation for training, but if you give me a great training situation, I'll do everything in my power to make it worth your while. Yeah. So just advocating for yourself. Uh-huh. And as you say, there are a lot of sports that are available for 
people with short stature. And so there's, you know, there's probably somewhere close to them where they can get involved um, and just get started somewhere. Yeah. And I've noticed, you know, through my 10 years in Paralympics that there's a lot of like Paralympic clubs starting to sprout throughout the U.S. There's one in Washington. Um, so it's just a bunch. There's one in Georgia, just a bunch of Paralympic athletes ranging in all abilities. And they get together a couple times a month and, and train together. And that's like, I think that's super cool just to be able to to see people and train with them and mm. get to know them. Do you come from a sporting family? I do. My dad was um, an ultra marathon runner um, and my mom was a, a mountain biker. Right. Wow. And are you the only dwarf in the family or is there, are there other, other people yep. in your extended family? Yep. I am um, the only dwarf. So both of my parents are um, average size and they had me. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you think of the biggest disadvantages that you face being of short stature, apart from needing to you know, get a set of stairs or something to get up to the top shelves of your kitchen? Yeah, um, nothing really at this point in my life. I don't know, I, it feels pretty equal at this point. Um, definitely growing up, there was, I couldn't really do our high school sports. I got kind of skinnied out of that pretty quickly because I was the only uh, disabled athlete. Um, socially, it was hard too, obviously. But now it, it seems it seems good, um, especially, you know, there's this big push happening in America right now, um, not just for the disabled community, but just equality in itself, um, which I think has really helped. The Paralympics are getting more more viewing here in America, which I think is helping us as well. So it, it's slowly changing, um, which is really cool to see. And do you see, do you talk to some of the athletes from other countries in, in swimming and, and what their experience has been? Um, one of my best friends is Eleanor Simmons, who's on the British team for swimming. And she went to 2008, 2012, 2016, and just retired here in 2020. Mm -hmm. And I spent um, summer of 2019 in London to train with her. And it was so crazy watching her walk through the streets because, I mean, everybody knew who she was. And she said it actually happened in Beijing when London knew they were going to have the games, the next quad, mm -hmm. that London did this big push for all of their para-athletes. Um, so she was like, I was walking around with a celebrity and it was really <laughs> cool to see. Yeah, yeah. The, the opportunities available in different countries are, are, are quite different and it's good that the U.S. is finally catching up um, in so many ways with where things are at in a number of other countries. Yeah. Yeah. Sophia, you said that you're, you've got a, a tub of ice cream in the freezer at the moment. What is your favourite food? My favourite food? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know, actually. It's not probably the ice, ice cream? <laughs> probably ice cream. I'm definitely trying to limit my sugar intake out as much but yeah I, I could eat a bowl of ice cream every night <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you feel as though as an athlete you had to sacrifice anything to to do that or was that an easy choice to make? Um, It was an easy choice and it wasn't so much for me cutting it out because, you know, it was bad for you. It was more cutting it out because it wasn't going to benefit me in my training. Mm. You know, I couldn't eat like a a bowl of ice cream before training. Um, It would have done really nothing for me. I would have just burned the sugar training and then it, it had no recovery value to me. So it wasn't as big of a like a sacrifice. Um, it just wasn't benefiting me. But we, Nick and I, um, got into this this habit when we were at the training center of getting caramel apples. They had like a stamp card. <laughs> and we would go get caramel apples like once a week. So we, we would definitely treat ourselves. We weren't, you know, eating grilled chicken, rice, and steamed broccoli every night. Like we, we would eat well for sure. I've got to say caramel apples are probably a, a one of the healthier versions of a treat that you can come across. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, good job. Well, thank you very much, Sophia. I think, you know, you're a great role model to other athletes and, and I love the attitude that you bring in terms of it's, you know, the decisions that you make are all about what's going to make you the best athlete that you can be. And that's the commitment that you've made by making that your job. So um, well done to you on a fantastic career to date. Who knows, you may come back to swimming or we may see you out on the ski fields or maybe on a bike. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, It's been great chatting to you and I wish you all the very best for your upcoming wedding and for whatever life brings. Thank you so much. It was so good to talk to you. What did I learn from Sophia? I think it's great that she was able to explore different training methods and and ways of doing things to confirm what worked best for her as an individual and had the confidence to be able to commit to that. And the fact that she recognises that that can be very different for different athletes It highlights the individuality of working with athletes and really understanding their unique needs. Thank you for joining us and I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you want to share it with your social media, please do so. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd be happy to hear them. Join us next time when we talk to Meg Lemon, paracyclist and sports dietitian.